Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Do investments in the cannabis sector need a bit of a reality check? Michael Goldberg from credit rating agency DBRS, he joins us later on in the show to discuss why the sector still may be a risky bet. And does the solution to BC's housing crisis require maybe smaller thinking? Small Housing BC's Jake Fry discusses how diminutive housing units could help densify neighborhoods in an affordable and sustainable way. That's coming up next. Our next guest is organizing the Small Housing Summit on November 17th here in Vancouver in a bid to explore the sometimes less explored opportunities to address the housing crisis here in this province. Joining us today, it's Jake Fry. He's co-founder of Small Housing BC. Jake, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Um, Thank you for having us. So before we dive into this issue, I want to hear from you. What is kind of the definition, though, of small housing if we're talking about this subject here? Well, you know, I think that's a really, uh, I mean, I think it's always a top, <laughs> the first question comes out and, you know, I think there's a lot of definitions that we could use. Certainly, um, you know, most people want to rush to the idea of, you know, how big is that? Is it a tiny home? Is it one of these homes on trailers? Is it, and, and what we're talking about really is homes that range in size, in some cases, 200 square feet, thinking of, you know, uh, micro suite units that you have. Um, in various cities, but really um, homes that are under 1,200 square feet. If I was to define it more meaningfully, though, I would say really a small home tends to be a ground-orientated residence that um, satisfies and is comfortable for the inhabitants. So it sort of meets someone's needs. You have exactly what you need and what you're comfortable with a home, but it doesn't have any extraneous square footage. You, You don't have large media rooms or swimming pools and so forth. I, I recall when I was covering City Hall for Vancouver a couple of years back, and they passed the laneway home measures that would allow people to put up these laneway homes uh, more frequently across Vancouver. And if you look over the years, they really maybe haven't taken off. And I think there's some challenges and barriers that are preventing people from doing that. Is that part of the problem is there remains many barriers getting in the way of getting these to proliferate across just a, a city like Vancouver? Well, you know, I would, I'd have to say, I'd have to disagree with you on some, uh, on a couple of points. One is that, you know, the Vancouver program, um, while we still have an acute housing crisis in Vancouver, um, you know, on a number of fronts of different type of housing. But when we look at the Laneway House program, overall, it's been a very successful program where we're into well over 4,000 permits that have been issued. Um, It's become a mainstream building form and it's a topology that didn't exist 10 years ago. So, on that front, you know, there, there is a significant amount of housing that has been generated. But more to your point, and I think it's more probably, you know, really the crux of a province-wide challenge, and which is really what we're hoping to really delve into at the summit in, so, in a meaningful way, in an actionable way, is the fact that we are really been on the course of growing the province over the last, you know, 10 decades and very successfully. But we're at a point now where when we look at, the needs of uh, of the people in the province when it comes to housing, we've been building the wrong housing stock, and we've probably been building the wrong housing stock for the last 15 years. And and looking ahead at what the actual needs were, um, what we need to start to do is to look at how to better use the lands in the city, how we can start utilizing the square footage that we have, and then by that I mean, you know 
properties being able to get to a certain density that you see in family neighborhoods, but actually creating more homes with the same density so that properties now accommodate three or four families. So that said, we're not doing that effectively province-wide. And the opportunity and what the summit really delves into is how we're able to do that while at the same time maintaining very, um, you know, beautiful neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are well-treated, that have strong communities, that have strong neighbors and, and, and have a, an effective manner of keeping that kind of neighborhood feel that we appreciate in our towns across the province, but at the same time, really starting to delve in and produce the type of housing that meets the needs and the affordability needs of the, of the inhabitants, because affordability is a problem in Terrace, and it's a problem in Vernon, and it's an acute problem in Vancouver. Well, we just had the municipal elections across the province, and I think most of them centered very much on the issue of affordable housing that's going on across British Columbia. I, I spoke to a lot of mayoral candidates, and a lot of them were saying that even a lot of those communities, those neighborhoods that would typically be known for a little bit of nimbyism, I'll, I'll say that, um, they, mm-hmm. they actually do want to address this. They, they want to get more families in. They actually want children, you, you know, playing in the streets where we have these empty yeah. neighborhoods. Tell me a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, are you seeing that there is actually a lot more willingness than there were maybe just a few years ago to explore some of the, these ideas that are being presented now? Yes. And so the short answer is 100%. I think that is, you know, I think everyone to everyone's kind of um, shocked, <laughs> you know, if we could say that. Yep. You know, we've seen this movement growing. Uh, you know, I've had the good fortune to do a lot of public speaking, um, both on the non- from the perspective of, of Small Housing BC and this other events because of our work with Langley Houses and Small Works. And, you know, what I've seen is that those rooms that started off with two or three interested parties are now, you know, we're getting 200, 300 people to some events. Um, and certainly the summit will be uh, sort of at that, at that level of uh, attendance. And, in doing so, what we're really seeing is that we've really, you know, struck a chord with people. They, they are, there is this look and feel that this is no longer um, a scary thing. And, and to be candid, probably our biggest uh, incumbents to being able to produce more housing is the fact that we, um, it's not the reaction to the public uh, to these homes. It's the, it's the infrastructure that we have throughout the province with, you know, bureaucratic and, and building departments and planning departments whom, you know, have been trying to create good housing. I don't think they're, I think they're very well intended, but they're now behind the times. And, you know, it's, it's uh, trying to create a, a more rapid change um, can, can be very, can be problematic, but we think it's a terrific opportunity. And we think the change of governments across the province and, and the new provincial government hold a, a lot of hope um, that that will be embraced and we can see some changes happen in a meaningful way. Yeah, you know, I, I think the bureaucratic red tape that can often get in the way, I, it's very interesting because I, I wonder if we have a, a, almost a cultural issue here in, in which, you know, Vancouverites from a young age, that they're kind of, you know, told that, well, your your duty should be to get a, a single detached home and you end up having or a single family detached home and you end up having a lot of, you know, city hall workers uh, across the province that, that are kind of, I, I would say, leaning towards uh, that way of thinking as well. Do we think that there's maybe a bit of a cultural shift that that is already underway in which we're realizing that we need to rethink what our goals ultimately are when it comes to our own housing? Well, you know, how I would, my observation has been the following. One is that we're really, again, it's kind of this moment of sea change where we have a a population that's quite significant depleting the workforce. And a lot of those individuals are really looking to 
you know, make life more comfortable for themselves. And, and one of the ways to do that is actually to have smaller homes, less belongings. And I think a lot of people, a lot of, certainly a lot of our clients in small works, those are the people we're talking to. And then on the other hand, we have this young cohort, um, you know, being the millennials or, or the generation just coming in under that, who are very, very interested in quality over quantity. I mean, that, that value has really become um, something that, that's a common thread. And so it's those two groups that are driving and asking for a different, different type of housing. And when we look at housing, I, I agree, the single family home is so important to that spectrum of housing, but that's what we expect for the single family home is now different. You know, if we've looked at the housing market in general, over the last three decades, homes have become significantly bigger, housing fewer people. And I think this is part of the reset. And that's when we talk about small housing, we're talking about uh, that array of townhouses, row houses, uh, fourplexes, little apartment walk-ups. Um, you know, it's, it's quite an arrangement of, of different topologies. And in fact, we're not even saying it's one over another. It's the fact that they should all exist in commonality. So people have that more diverse choice and they have a choice that suits what their needs are. And if more importantly, or of equal importance, it develops communities that have that, you know, kind of interwoven dynamic that we're, our expectation of bigger cities, which is what this province is starting to increase all our cities are increasing in population and so they need to reflect housing types that work for that at the same time creating that topology that allows people to have that ground oriented experience in a single family home so, so I, I think i might add on that point though if i could just, just i know yeah uh, yeah no of course add one point you know, the other thing is that we have an acute need for rental housing and 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 the interesting thing and and we don't dwell on it long enough 80 percent of rental housing becomes available because people move into an ownership model. And we're not giving them opportunities to move into that ownership model with a touch of housing that we're building. So we're also in denying or being restrictive on new typologies of housing, we're actually creating and enhancing a, uh, an already significant rental problem. So the two go hand in hand and they're not exclusive to one another. What I just wanted to bring up as well is I, I'm kind of guilty of being very Vancouver-centric in some of the questions I've been throwing your way, but but you have brought up the fact that this is a province-wide thing that we can be thinking about here. What would, say, this be addressing in some of the outer suburbs where maybe densification isn't such an issue? There, there's so much more space, but housing affordability is still an issue, and it can still address what's going on in some of the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we had the good fortune in Small House in BC. One of our projects last year had us touring um, roughly 25 different uh, sized cities throughout the province and, and, you know, large towns to cities. And the problem is common. I mean, we, we may be, um, you know, often shocked and we'll shock our friends and neighbors when we talk about housing prices in Vancouver. But when you're in Vernon and you're looking at housing prices, which are equally out of grasp of, the, of a, a young working couple, um, the numbers may not compare to Vancouver, but in, 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 uh, in regards to, uh, you know, what the impact is and the inaccessibility, they might as well be the same. So I think this has a role everywhere. And I think, again, we've just taken such a uniform look to what a house is and what the housing market has been building um, that uh, what we find is that we're in an opportunity where we can start to create something a little different everywhere. It's something that's a bit more modest everywhere, but actually, in fact, becomes more of a privileged housing form because it's really addressing what people need.
Jake, I, I should have asked you this right from the start, but uh, have you ever had the opportunity to live in a small housing unit? Or are you living in one right now? Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. So, um, yeah, the, well, my wife and I raised our daughter in, uh, uh, in fact, it was quite lovely. It was an old 1910 home that was two uh, 900 square foot flats, one over the other. It was a, it was a very early duplex. It was, mm-hmm. uh, it was in Vancouver. It was, uh, in fact, I even have a picture of the housing site a year before the house was there. It was all clear, plump, uh, clear cut with stumps. You know, it was sort of on the top of uh, the ridge as you go up to UBC from uh, uh, from Alma Street. And then currently, right now, we live in a, a really fantastic housing um, complex uh, built in nineteen uh, in the 1920s, and it's called Patlow Court. And it's 12 little houses, little English cottages around a common courtyard. And, um, you know, so it's quite interesting you ask that question because I think what's acutely um important to reflect on is that a lot of these housing types that we're talking about, they've existed in the past and they've existed in a time with a different type of austerity when Vancouver or, or other smaller towns were just starting up. These are the type of houses that people built because they made sense. And we're, we're coming back to a time when we need to reflect on those. So although the ideas we're talking about are quite new for the environment, they're not new when we look at what has happened in the past and what has been successful. I think the other thing that people are, are curious about, because most people aren't probably occupying the, these particular housing units right now, but but what has your experience been like? How, how have you enjoyed being in there? Well, uh, it's great. It, I mean, it, it is, again, if we look to, I like to go back to my definition of small, you know, that you have a home that meets your needs, um, that's com- very comfortable, but doesn't have excess. I mean, all of a sudden your home becomes, you know, something that's, not only comfortable and heartwarming, but it's also something that's not a burden on you. It's, it's able to provide shelter, to be comfortable, to be personalized, to have really good neighbor contacts, to have a relationship with the community right around you in a way that you don't have with really large homes. And and I think that is so important, and that really makes life comfortable. I mean, I have to say when um, the opportunity to live in a community where you have a vibrant corner store and you know with the sort of the type of communities we see that this helps foster um those are good communities those are strong communities with strong social ties and and there's a mix of having very good private space that has you immediately you know have a little garden or some private outdoor space and at the same time also then have strong neighborhood connections which really makes life so important when we're not alienated from the communities we live in well, excellent. Uh, Jake, I always like it when people are thinking differently than what maybe our typical predisposition predisposition might be. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to the Small Housing Summit. And, and for all those that might be interested, that's going on November 17th here in Vancouver. Jake, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, so it was a real pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about our ideas. That's Jake Fry, co-founder of Small Housing BC. Stay with us. Michael Goldberg from DBRS. He's going to discuss whether investments in the cannabis industry need a bit of a reality check. Cannabis investments have been tempting many a retail investor, but does the sector need a bit of a reality check? credit rating agency DBRS has released a commentary examining the newly legalized recreational industry. And joining us today, it is Michael Goldberg. He is Senior Vice President of Communications and Retail at DBRS. Michael, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. 
So you've penned a, a commentary here, and uh, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it all, tell me a little bit of what is the opportunity here for investors. Uh, so we, so our commentary uh, is about uh, the, the credit risk of of uh, LPs in the cannabis space. So um, we we've been we've had some discussions with some of the investment bankers who represent some of these these companies on our initial thoughts on how we would assign a credit rating to some of the LPs if they did decide to do a bond issuance and come to us. And following these discussions, we thought it would be a good idea to just put out our thoughts on the industry as it stands right now uh, to give uh, the investors um, a chance to read our our opinion on on these companies uh, out of the gate following legalization into the recreational market. And, and uh, when we talk about LPs, in this situation, we're talking specifically about licensed producers, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah. So uh, we're looking at a, a sizable market here. I, I believe in the commentary, you guys have looked at about 4 to $6 billion in terms of revenue that can be generated uh, here. What about the valuations, though? And I'm not asking you to point out anybody specifically, but uh, some of the valuations that we're seeing on the market right now, they're a little bit of a head scratcher to me. Where are you guys coming down on what's going on right now? Um, so, so our expertise is not in equity valuations. I mean, we're we're assigning um, credit ratings, so probability of default on a piece of debt if if any of these companies had debt outstanding, which they they don't right now. So, um, I can't really comment on the valuations we're seeing uh, in the market, but but I can comment on on the market size and and so so our initial estimates was was about a four to six billion dollar market out of the gate in Canada, which is a very wide range uh, and and you know it, it is a decent size market, but when when we compare it to other consumer product categories like for example you know alcohol is, is about you know twenty two and a half billion in Canada right now. And tobacco, which is over 20 billion in Canada right now, cannabis is a pretty small uh, subsector of the the consumer markets product uh, consumer products market out of the gate. So, uh, you know, it's it's a decent size market, but there's a, there's a lot of unknowns. So uh, that explains our our wide range in you know of the four to six billion market out of the gate, and uh, and it is relatively small compared with other consumer subsectors. And we talk about that wide range, and I'm just curious, maybe you can fill in some blanks for me here, though. Is there a wide range also maybe because we're looking at potential for some of the black market to eventually move into what is now kind of a legalized recreational market? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a, a lot a lot of reasons for, for the wide range there. Like Number one, you know, the, our, the historical performance data that we have from the licensed producers, uh, it is... You know, it is only addressing the uh, the medical market, so we can't really use the historical performance to forecast the uh, the market uh, going forward. Um, we we also we don't really know what consumer reception is going to be um, following legalization. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of demand out of the gate, but you know, it's it's only been you know less than less than a month so far. So 
we'll, we'll have to monitor that over time. Um, you know, we don't know what the regulatory framework is really going to look like going forward. So because of all of these um, unknowns, you know, our initial view on credit risk is, is pretty is pretty high. So the unknowns create risks, which is why if we were going to be rating a company uh, in the cannabis space right now, there would be a lot of risk. And that forms the basis of our initial, you know, non-investment grade uh, view of, of any of these companies. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I, I was uh, silly uh, in my first question or one of my first questions when I was asking uh, specifically about uh, the valuations that we're seeing on the market. But you guys, of course, mm -hmm. are, are experts here in, in credit ratings and you did give this a, a non-investment grade. And for people that are a little unfamiliar with that, what exactly does that mean? You were talking about the unknowns, but when we hear on a non-investment grade, what would that mean to mm -hmm. maybe kind of layman? Sure. So um, credit ratings are just are basically um, an evaluation of the, the probability of default of a company. So, so if a company had um, debt outstanding, what is the likelihood that they're going to be able to, to meet those obligations? So pay their interest and repay the debt once it matures. So an investment grade credit rating is uh, a rating that's either triple B low or higher, rate, rate, rate ranging up to, to triple A. So, you know, very, very low risk rating would be triple A. So like the government of Canada, for example, is rated triple A and investment grade uh, ranges all the way down to triple B low. So uh, non-investment grade would be a rating of double B high or lower. And, and that goes all the way into the C ranges. So, so basically non-investment grade is there's a certain probability of default, like in the next five years or so, call it maybe in the five to 10% range or higher um, that, that a company is not going to be able to meet its debt obligations in, in f the next five years or so. I am pulling from my memory here, and if I do recall correctly, you guys gave a B grade in this situation. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we, we thought that most licensed producers out of the gate, if we were rating them right now, would be in that single B range. So, you know, if I can, if I can just compare, you know, I can give you an idea of why we, we, we think that. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we look at a company we rate, like, for example, Molson Coors, the, the, the large international brewer, we rate Molson Coors triple below, which is an investment grade uh, rating. So if, if Molson was coming to us for a new rating, you know, we would analyze their past performance. So we could look back over, say, 20 years of results. We could see, you know, the seasonality in their business. We could see uh, the cyclicality in their business. I mean, do people still drink beer when economic uh, times are tough? Um, we could, we'd have a good idea of their market positions in given markets, or are they number one or number two in the markets that they, they participate? Um, we would have a good idea of who their competitors are and how they compete against their competitors. Uh, we would have an understanding of the regulatory framework in the markets they compete and how they're taxed. Uh, and then, you know, we could use all of that information to forecast their their revenues, their earnings, and their cash flows going forward. And you know, we could we could forecast those within a, a pretty tight range because of all of the information that we had on Molson Coors. Now, obviously, there would be things that um, that could affect the forecast, like things that we we wouldn't consider. So, you know, if the weather the next summer was you know not good, maybe people wouldn't drink as much beer in their backyards uh, at their backyard barbecues. So, there there are ways that they could not hit the forecast, but again, the range would be pretty tight. Um, now, when we compare that to a cannabis uh, producer, 
really right now we, the historical performance is, you know, only partially relevant because it's, they're only selling into the, the medical market in the past. Uh, we don't really know what the, the supply and demand is going to be going forward. We don't have a good idea of the regulatory framework, how these guys are going to be taxed and the, the consumer response to to their products. So when we forecast, if we were forecasting their, their revenue and earnings and, and cash flows going forward, it would be a very wide range of outcomes. So basically that, that variance is, is why our initial view on this space would be single B in the single B range. And a lot of it, uh, what you're spelling out here, it comes down to the unknowns. And I, maybe I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but if you had to ballpark it, is there a kind of an idea about when we'll get timeline-wise, about when things will better shake out, we'll get a better idea of what these unknowns are, and you might be able to reconsider what the uh, what the grade is at this point? Yeah, so, so I think there's quite a bit of opportunity for the companies in this space to improve their, their credit ratings pretty rapidly going forward because, mm-hmm. um, because as they start reporting uh, their, their quarterly financials, we're going to get a great idea or a, a much uh, a greater idea of, of, the, of the supply, of the demand, of each of their market positions, um, how, how they're able to establish their brands. And, and these are the types of things that we will use to to evaluate credit risk going forward. So just once once those unknowns become knowns, um, it would make us a lot more comfortable in developing a forecast for one of the licensed producers going forward. So so I do think there's certainly going to be winners and losers. Like right now, there's about 120 LPs out there or licensed producers out there. And uh, and the market's probably not big enough for that many licensed producers. So some of them are going to be successful. Some of them will be unsuccessful. But I think there's a great opportunity for the ones that are successful to uh, significantly improve their credit risk profiles in the next you know, year or two. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, Michael, very fascinating stuff that's going on. I, I, I think there's going to be so much more unfolding, as you say, in the next year or two. It's going to be interesting to see what comes of it. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Great. And thank you for having me. That's Michael Goldberg. He is Senior Vice President, Communications and Retail at DBRS. That's it for BIV today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, you can find our archives on iTunes or Stitcher. So tell your friends to go ahead and subscribe. You can also go to BIV.com for all our news stories, which are posted online. We'll see you next time. Thank you.